Welcome to the Reinventing Education Podcast. I'm Rob McLeod, joined today by the well-organized Brendan O'Leary, and we are discussing kindergarten in the mainstream school. How are you, Brendan? That's right, Rob. Yes, we are. I don't know if we can do it. It's a challenge. This is going to be a difficult one to wrap our heads around. So first of all, terminology alarms going off. Teachers love to use obscure jargon. If you're not sure what a mainstream school is or how it might compare to a traditional school or progressive school, fast forward to the end of this episode to about the last five minutes of this MP3 file, and we'll give you the uh, glossary explaining what we mean by traditional mainstream and progressive. And uh, you can also flip back to episode 50 if you want a deeper dive into the nuts and bolts of all this. But Brendan, let's set the table. Mainstream school talking about the relationship of like a coach athlete. We're looking at doing things effectively and efficiently. We're looking to maximize opportunities. This is a bit of a difficult one to get our heads around because some of these things will look similar in a traditional school, possibly even progressive school that we'll see in a mainstream school, but we're all, we're doing these things for different reasons. Maybe we can set the table by comparing what a more traditional approach to kindergarten looks like, and then contrast that with the mainstream approach. Yeah, so the one thing that we will see across all three of the types of, of kindergarten, the traditional mainstream and progressive, is that they're, they're based around play. You know, every one of these mindsets or paradigms acknowledges that, that a large part of children's life is, is play-based. It's kind of how they approach it. One of the things that was a bit of a revelation for us when we looked at um, traditional kindergarten was it, it's almost viewed as you're too early to take much responsibility other than your own manners and your own kind of the way you interact socially with, with um, the children around you. And so we're just really going to focus on that. There'll be lots of free time to play in these kind of relatively unstructured environments. And then the teachers will, will then run some really specific activities such as some, some crafts where they'll guide you through step by step where you can practice your fine motor skills and some sing songs and maybe a few little dances. And, and other than that, maybe it's really about having good manners, being able to sit and listen, be able to, to become a good boy or a good girl. Um, and a lot of that sticks around when you get into mainstream, but also it's, as you say, it's done for different reasons. And so whether you call it nursery, reception, kindergarten, preschool, so the, the years before you get into grade one or year one are a very interesting attempt for us as a society to make sense of how we gather together groups of children and then kind of raise them anything you want to add to that kind of description of the traditional like you said this type of school or i shouldn't say type of school but this par portion of the school kindergarten we're saying has different names as you mentioned nursery reception preschool all these kinds of things what's interesting too is across different countries regardless of being traditional mainstream or progressive it also begins at different times so like my experience in ontario there's junior kindergarten and then senior kindergarten. Junior kindergarten is optional. Senior kindergarten was compulsory. And, you know, junior kindergarten, you could potentially be three years old and in junior kindergarten for about your last three months of being three years old, depending when your birthday is. Whereas some countries, you're not going to see students enter this until age five, age six, possibly you could be finishing up kindergarten still at the age of seven. So it is like this really wide range of ages that we're talking about here. But regardless of the age, regardless if it's compulsory or not, uh, we're talking about basically how do we prepare, like you said, how do we raise these children and how do we like prepare them for the next step of school, which is, you know, this kind of grade one idea. And, you know, there is this idea that once you start grade one, that's that's real school and this thing before it. It's not, it's not real school yet. And once you do start in grade one, it shouldn't look like what was happening in kindergarten either, by and large. 
I mean, that's an interesting thing because I, I, you know, I've worked in many schools and that transition between kindergarten and grade one or year one, and it happens at different ages, which is the weird thing. So, it, but when it, and you see the same thing happening in middle school and then university and so on, it's almost like these rites of passages that, um, it's, um, that we really want to make clear as defined statements. Um, but the thing is, when we get into the, the kindergarten, the kids themselves are going through massive amounts of development, which, which, which means that you just can't do the same thing with the three-year-olds as you can with the five-year-olds, unlike like grade four and five and six are quite similar, and grade 10 and 11 and 12, quite similar in many ways. Of course, there, there are big differences in going through adolescence and all of those things are huge changes too. But the difference between a three-year-old coming in and a six-year-old leaving is unbelievable. They're just going from being toilet trained and barely able to move around without falling over or throw tantrums all the way up to being almost reasonable human beings at, at, at seven years old, possibly. I've been looking at this guy called Kohlberg's um, moral kind of development and it's the kind of a spiral idea of like basically two steps forward one and a half steps back and so like the two-year-olds are starting to look a little bit more reasonable that by two and a half they've gone back into throwing like the, the violent fits and demanding everything and at three again they're kind of you know back to having some patience maybe being social a little bit just the task of being those teachers that, that are able to take those kids through those steps is immense. And then seeing how that reflects your or the school's mindset. So coming into the mainstream mindset, and um, we're looking at what you might see in that classroom is this idea of station. So it, it, that term play-based, which as we said, all, all kindergartens essentially are play-based, but I think it's the mainstream work that starts to use that terminology of play-based, um, where we will actually design little stations and maybe they're very open, um, such as it's just a water station where the kids can play water, sand. Maybe it's a little bit more structured, like there's a dress-up area that's kind of designed to be a doctor's surgery or something like that. And then all the way up to quite instructed, um, more formal educated stuff, which might be a craft-based or an arts-based. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, even going into things like phonics and, and, and math skills. So I think that's that level of design is something you would only see coming in a mainstream kindergarten where it's like, here are the actual stations. There's a writing station, a library, water play, dress-up area for so on. And some are more available at, the, at other times. And some of them will have a, a teacher with four kids and other times that there'll be unsupervised play. Um, but it is very much that notion of structuring the environment deliberately to um, allow for these um, mandated amounts of free play which is always interesting like it, the, the percentages change in Britain but I've seen it in like 50% of the time must be free unstructured play or unsupervised or semi-supervised of course as we said last week the supervision is always actually there for safety but it's really interesting that those things start to be kind of really considered. And you mentioned this idea of setting up the environment and then so the role of the teacher in this quite often is to be able to provide the students with questions about what they're doing. So the coach is kind of stepping in, observing what the student athlete in this case with our model is doing. And the coach is saying, ah, you know, the next thing, like, you know, they're showing an interest in, you know, if it's a free play zone and, you know, they're playing shop, it's like, well, the kid's trying to write a receipt. Well, it's like, I could ask, I mean, do you know what's on a receipt? What, do you, what are you putting on there? Oh, what kinds of things could we add to this? So this idea of the kids are always engaged in play to begin with. They're exploring things that are where they are at developmentally. They're showing us through their interests and through what their capacities are. And then it's that kind of job of the coach to see that, analyze it, and then find, oh, what, what could be the next push that's not too easy, not too hard, 
but right where this kid's at, almost to like keep them in like a flow state of like making their play more complex or bringing more factors into it. Is that a fair assessment of that? Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that as an approximate development idea, just pushing them on a little bit more than they would do by themselves. And I think what we'd see in the mainstream is you get this idea of developmental milestones coming in. So the, you know, the Ontario curriculum is a, is a very popular one. We, we use it in our school and, uh, and um, the early years in, in Britain as the foundation stage kind of um, developmental milestones. And so there, what would happen is the teacher is trying to kind of set up the environment and guide the kids in that kind of direction. It's not as specific as the taught objectives that you would get in a mainstream elementary school or primary school. But still, uh, what's going through the teacher's mind is which of these curriculum kind of developmental milestones are they hitting now and where can I kind of like nudge them in that direction or I'd like them to do something a little bit more to do with um, kind of role play or to push them in the, the, the realm of more gross motor skills and fine motor skills practice and so on. So, yeah, and it's very conscious. It's it's not um, as you might get in in. I guess both the traditional and the progressive where it is more going with one of the adults or the children's kind of desires and, and, and aims. This is more like, as with everything in mainstream, the curriculum's in the back, the background kind of running the show a little bit and you're kind of nudging them in that, in a direction that will help to achieve those aims. Yeah, and it's interesting, you mentioned the idea of the percentage of a day or a week that should be this mandated free play. And then the other side is the kind of more formal lessons or teaching and learning, like explicit teaching and learning. And what you will see in a mainstream kindergarten is this move towards like formal teaching programs. So definitely, you know, my experience in Ontario in the junior and senior kindergarten classes was, you know, we had phonics, full on phonics programs going on with three, four, five, six year olds. So they're learning their letter sounds, learning, you know, different combinations, all these sorts of things. And, you know, there is some kind of like formal approaches and programs also for other subjects. Like, you know, there were a, like level appropriate differentiated math programs that the kids are working through to, you know, build up some of the numeracy concepts. Um, you know, there can still be like inquiry based units in terms of math using some of the students interests or again, picking up on themes from their play and then bringing data from that free play into some of those explicit lessons times as well to like inform what those lessons are looking like. But as you were alluding to, it's not just full free discernment for the teacher. They're obviously referencing everything back to these big milestones and ensuring that they are ticking some of these benchmarks. Yeah, and that, that's definitely key that the, te the mainstream teacher in kindergarten is juggling a lot of expectations that their students and, and often the parents of the students really have very little idea of the complexity of the framework that they're trying to kind of work within. And it's really interesting when you when you talk to them about how they set up their environment and how they measure um, the learning for each, each kind of child and how, um, this idea of developmental milestones is not like the rubric in, that we've talked about in elementary where it's levels of quality. It's really just like, have they reached this milestone and how can I kind of move them in this direction? And then in terms of things like the formally taught stuff, what's happened in, in Britain is that those have become standardized and, and there are expectations that teachers will get their students to a certain level on that and it depends really on your your beliefs about what kids should be doing at the ages of four five and six and whether or not you you, you could be a, a parent or a teacher listening right now and if you're quite a mainstream you might be like well it makes sense to do phonics with them at five and six they're ready for it it's 20 minutes out of the six hours of the day that they're there they're, they're in school it, it, it motivates them to become readers and you can do it in context however we'll get to the bathwaters later there you know the other uh, mindsets might disagree with that approach one thing that would happen in terms of the activities that you'd see in this traditional school you would have these kind of activities that were 
again, traditional. They would come up uh, often seasonal. They, uh, celebrations are a huge thing in the traditional kind of uh, school. They'll have a graduation or they'll have a, um, a Christmas or wherever you are in the world, they'll have some religious uh, or cultural celebrations and they'll, they'll be kind of a big deal. What we call the flags and festivals kind of approach. And talking about the seasons, talking about... Um, any changes that are observable around and sure that's all you know perfectly relevant stuff to the lives of the children however i think in a mainstream school you'd see the year structured more around thematic units that may not they, there may be one that's based on seasons or one that's based on you know a particular event but then you'd also have the some that might be based on exploration you know i saw a great one that was like pirates you know it was a uh, you know, it was about kind of uh, explorers and and um, it would be like a very, what we call transdisciplinary kind of unit. So they would have elements of maths and literacy and play and all, all forms of play and arts and drama and, and sports. And they would all be integrated into these units. Um, you see a lot more of that kind of thing in a mainstream kind of school. Um, and they would be structured not unlike the daily lessons that you would see up in uh, grades one to six and so on. Um, again, that's quite different from the more open and free play structure of many traditional kindergartens. So yeah, you're seeing more structure and more thematic things throughout the year and less of these traditional events, although they still obviously occur. Yeah, and speaking of differentiation, the interesting part about a mainstream philosophy of kindergarten is this idea of a head start. And the idea that we can reach ahead in the curriculum or into years ahead and bring back a higher level of difficulty, that's fair game if a child shows they have an interest and an ability and a capacity for this. And, you know, we're going to find that out through our assessments and through some data. But the traditional kindergarten teacher might, you know, play with an idea that a kid can have some more difficult math work or something like that. But there'd always be this idea of like, well, you'll do that in grade one, or you'll do that in grade two. You know, that's coming. We don't have to do that now because it has its time and its place and it's on its way. Whereas the mainstream kindergarten teacher basically sees that anything that can be done as an opportunity to give you as an individual a head start on things that's based on your individual capacity is fair game. You know, I've seen this with uh, kindergarten and grade one teachers, you know, who in Ontario had kids working on the grade four, grade five curriculum, <laughs> math expectations and these sorts of things. Kids at these ages reading books that you wouldn't expect students to read until grades two or three, grades four, this kind of a thing. So this idea of these benchmarks as like, I don't think a traditional teacher would call them barriers. That's kind of my mainstream bias sneaking in here. But there is this idea that there's nothing that's going to be withheld from you for the sake of tradition. We're going to basically bring anything to the table that you show you are ready for. And we can jump you up as far ahead in the school as you show the capacity for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not to strawman the traditional kindergarten, I think if it, in a traditional kindergarten or school, if, if, if a, an exceptional student leaps out, then I think a teacher does work with them. I just think that in a mainstream kindergarten, that it's a more gradiated kind of approach to it. So it's not going to be just the one highly exceptional student is going to be there's going to be a few kids that are way above and then there's going to be a few kids that are pushing on and then a few kids that are, are, are going to need a little bit more extra support and even those basic developmental milestones um, and that's just that's just built in from day one in the in the mainstream approach this ties into the notion of assessment and so in a in a Again, not wanting to strawman the traditional kindergarten, but there aren't really the standardized or the expected developmental milestones. Now, a, a kindergarten teacher would know some of these things and the red flags would go off if the student wasn't making the developmental milestones in terms of social, in terms of 
say toilet training in terms of um, motor skills um, and, and general behavior. But what's different in the mainstream is it's, it's written. It's written, it's expected. And in many places there are kind of like checklists or, or reports that, that are written to show which of these developmental milestones have been met and which are not. Um, um, like I said before, some of the, most places, especially in Britain now, you'd have baseline tests in maths, in phonics, in other communication skills. Um, and what's happened in Britain the last year or two is that those standardized tests that happen in what we call reception, so the, the kids are, you know, five years old, they are then used to extrapolate forward for several years for projected scores. So th there's some really strict kind of assessments going on, both in the very specific phonics and maths, but also in the broad aspects of um, um, physical and social development. Um, and, and as we've said many times, mainstream school does start to bring parents into the discussion a little bit more. In the traditional, there are, you know, parent-teacher conferences or, or report cards where every six months or 12 months, the parents will get a little bit of information. And if you're spoken to outside of that, it might not necessarily always be a good thing. Um, I think in the mainstream now, there is much more communication with parents, um, especially in the era, in the era of digital portfolios. We have a seesaw portfolio. Parents in our school, many schools globally now, they're getting photographs, they're getting um, specific descriptions of the of the objectives and the milestones their kids are, are passing and, and achieving in um, on a daily basis, daily, weekly, uh, monthly. We have these ideas of learning stories where kind of this um, information is shared with, with parents and there's feedback and there's and it's an ongoing kind of discussion. And of course, you know, parents are picking up their kids at the end of the day. So more so than any other part of the school, and this goes for traditional and mainstream as, and, and progressive as well, those one-to-one -one conversations with parents are happening all the time. But in a mainstream, they're backed up by all of this uh, all these photographs and videos and kind of um, setting the framework up for the parents so the informed parent can really have a good idea of where the, their child is at in terms of these curriculum areas and it can inform as they go forward into year one or grade one. And then if we zoom into like what's happening in any given lesson or what you know the aims are in terms of what's happening at the stationed work or this sort of thing when we move into mainstream, our pedagogy quite often is informed by the most current research or trends that we're finding in um, educational research. So you might see, if you, if you followed a mainstream kindergarten teacher over five years, let's say, you might see that from year one to year five, it's possible their classroom and their practices could look completely different because that teacher is not invested necessarily personally with any one approach. But if they see, oh, new research is saying, actually, it's better to do something this way. And I was doing it, you know, the opposite way. I'm willing to let go of what I was doing and, and move on and try something new. And I think with a mainstream teacher, there's a lot more openness towards trying new approaches and new pedagogy and, and actually staying up on the research. And actually, I do remember one of my principals in Ontario we were discussing kindergarten and she was saying that, you know, when she interviews someone for a position in kindergarten, she actually will ask them like, oh, and you know, what journals or what like pedagogical literature are you checking out on a semi-regular basis? And, you know, and what can you tell me about one of the articles that you've read recently that's changed your practice? So like if heads of schools are looking for that, you can be sure that this is something that a mainstream teacher needs to be engaged with. And if it's not them, it should at least be coming top down from the district, from the heads, from whatever, that sort of thing. But this idea that what you're doing is backed up by scientific literature. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, an experienced uh, traditional kindergarten teacher would have those years of practice and experience built in as you know but the what we see as we've said several times before is a mainstream teacher looking actively for that best practice and bringing it in 
and working with their team and, and hopefully um, working at which parts of it work and apply and then kind of adapting it to the best practices. Another thing that you see coming in in mainstream kindergarten is, like I said, very specific expectations from the government um, and often from the heads of school who are representing those outside kind of parties. So again, getting back to the idea of curriculum document standardized testing, it is no longer just the autonomous teachers making those decisions. They're part of a wider national, statewide, province-wide province kind of um, framework and best practices. And again, that ties into that research-based. And often, because you are connected to so many other schools and areas, you will have networks. And that will allow you to build up that practice and, and, and go to see other kindergartens and see how they're applying that. So it's, you know, it's a bit of uh, a bit of a blessing and a curse to have that oversight because um, a lot of teachers feel uncomfortable sometimes to be, you know, observed and, and having to make uh, set goals for themselves and having to uh, meet specific criteria. But in the mainstream mindset, all of those are positives because it provides you with um, feedback that allows you to actually improve your practice and therefore improve the education for your students. And all of this, as always, in all three types of school, hinges on a functioning classroom where we've got a group of human beings together who need to engage with each other and interact. And of course, behavior and conflict management or conflict resolution uh, has a specific mainstream approach. So in traditional there was just more this idea of like, make sure you are behaving, make sure you are being well and you know what that means. And if not, there will be a punishment about it, you know, possibly, you know, in the unhealthy expression of it, you know, just getting told off and in a healthier uh, traditional approach, you know, just reinforcing why it is that we want to act that way. Once we move into mainstream, though, like we talk about this idea of choice and discussions around conflict management or issues of behavior is this idea that fundamentally you chose to act this way. You could have chosen something else, but you chose to do this. So what was your personal motivation or the reasoning behind this? And so there's these, this kind of two-prong approach. One is that there is a choice. And then the second is that the way we want to behave together has already been publicly stated and made transparent. And we'll have this kind of idea of like overarching principles about, you know, we base our decisions in this classroom on respect. You know, these big kind of like abstract ideas that are abstract ideas, but they've been talked about in the class and they're reinforced in moments like this when they haven't been acted on. So it's not just getting a punishment. So let's say Brendan behaves poorly with someone. It's not just a matter of telling you off or reminding you to behave. In the mainstream approach, we talk through, well, well, why did you do that? You know, and, and to actually kind of get like objective and almost to some degree law-like or even scientific method about this, like objectively what happened? Oh, he threw that ball. Well, was it an accident or was it on purpose that this happened? Oh, and then you chose to do this. What's another choice you could have made? Okay, and what's another choice you could have made? What's another choice? And now let's rank those three choices. Which one would have been the best for you to do? cool, what might that have looked like if we would have tested this out? This kind of ongoing inquiry about why it is that we do things and then connecting it to basically, you know, talking to the kid like they're an adult and just say, well, we make our decisions based on these, you know, overarching principles or values. You know, what would a different decision have looked like had you done that? Um. And I would say that's one of the most controversial areas. We will get into the babies and bathwater soon, but all of these are really hot topic because, ah oh man, if you, you know, how your three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old is raised in your home, we're all parents, you're all new to this, right? It's like, we have no, there's no guidebook going in. And then we deal with a teacher who is an expert in this area. And we're often really quite conservative with our children. We want them to be safe above all. We want them to develop and to be and to, to grow into good people above all. 
there's no roadmap for it. It's, it's so tricky. And so all of these ideas are highly controversial, whether you speak to a kind of three, four, five-year-old deal with a conversation like that in conflict resolution, or is there a developmental stage? Is it better to just say, that's bad, don't do that? It's not set in stone that either of those is correct or the context. Again, yeah, how much free play should they have? How much should you focus on their behavior and manners? How much should you focus on um, talking through their thinking? Man, it is an absolute minefield, the whole thing. I'd like to finish up this part before we get into babies and bathwater of reading something from the EYFS, the Early Years Foundation Stage Framework, which is from Britain. These are their four overarching principles that should they say should shape the practice in the earliest and it's drenched in mainstream talk but then there's little bits of traditional and progressive sprinkled in there as well but at its core take a listen see if you can hear anything that leaps out as as very mainstream the four guiding principles that should shape practice in early years number one Every child is a unique child who is constantly learning and can be resilient, capable, confident, and self-assured. Number two, children learn to be strong and independent through positive relationships. It's, it's anchored in that mainstream idea of uh, independence and so on, but it's, it's kind of touchstones of like the strong, which we'll hear in, in traditional, and the positive relationships, again, that's the universal Children learn and develop well in enabling environments with teaching and support from adults who respond to their individual interests and needs and help them to build their learning over time. Children benefit from a strong partnership between practitioners and parents. And the last one, the importance of learning and development. Children develop and learn at different rates. See the characteristics of effective teaching. The framework covers the education curve of all children in early years, including children with special educational needs and disabilities. So there we get into the differentiation aspect, which is maybe the, the of the four, the one that really leaps out to say, yes, they're unique, but that uniqueness must be reflected in how you support and develop um, each student. Exactly. And if we move over to the babies and bathwaters, what are the good and the bad about this approach to a mainstream take on kindergarten? I'd say, hands down, the biggest baby here, the best thing that is coming online is differentiation in a clear, transparent, measurement-based approach. And this idea that no one is being held back. And I think that's the part that speaks to me more. Because uh, when I see the frustrations or difficulties that traditional teachers have, and it probably shows up maybe even more so in kindergarten, is just this idea of like, no, 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 you will get to that later. And that creates frustrations for the kids who could easily be challenged by something more. Creates frustrations and conflicts with parents who say, well, you're asking them to spend half an hour doing this in class. At home, they're doing something 10 times more complex than what you're doing. Can't they, could they just have some time to do this other thing instead during this time in class? So this idea of bringing on differentiation and not just, you know, oh, I feel that in my gut, this kid could handle this or use this challenge, but actually measurement-based regarding, you know, connected back to standards, this sort of thing. This is a huge new gift that the mainstream approach to kindergarten is bringing. And like, you know, you said when we're framing all this at the start, ages three to seven, there's a wild universe of developmental change that's going on. And the more you can custom tailor it to each student, I think the better. That's my take on it anyways. But of course, to go back, the flip side of what I was saying as well, that differentiation is there as well for the kid who's not meeting some of those benchmarks and standards. And that idea that that kid is deserving of differentiation to meet them where they're at and not just be kind of shamed in the unhealthy traditional approach. Like, come on, you got to pull up your socks. You got to come on, get with the program. And then outsourcing that support to parents in the traditional approach 
the idea that no, that's the teacher's duty to differentiate towards that student is a huge new evolution in the complexity of the role of a teacher in kindergarten. Another idea of what's referred to now as uh, SEND, SEND is, um, is special educational needs and disabilities. The students who, even at such a young age, will get that very specific differentiated support. The notion that we recognize right from birth that some children will have these needs and we do want to support that. That's very much stemmed from the systematic approach of the mainstream and how is that done and how are you going to employ people in your school who that is their specific role um yeah that is definitely i mean this applies to the whole of school but this idea of not just differentiating but yeah differentiating for for a very wide range of needs um and those formal programs and this idea that the teachers are actually designing their environments means that they can tweak and add and put levels of difficulty into those things. And then when they're working with the kids, they can push those kids at their individual level. And again, you might say, as you're, if you're a traditional teacher and if you're, you, there's some great traditional teachers out there and you're doing it maybe instinctively, and this is just something you know works for the children, this is designed across the entire mainstream system to say, actually, we learned this from the best practices of traditional schools. And we took this on and said the best research backs this up too. You talk to the kids more, you push them in this specific area, you ask them those questions, you're, you're in there. Um, yeah, that's all, you know, real positive, the babies of this kind of kindergarten system. The environment is set up the structure, the system is set up to allow the teacher to support that student again in that zone of proximal development, the next little bit that they can't do by themselves. So lots of positives. And I, you know, one we didn't have on our notes there is I think just also this idea, at least from my experience in Ontario, Germany, and Belgium, in a mainstream kindergarten classroom, it's a really positive environment. And I'm not saying it's not in a traditional or progressive environment, but there's this really just this kind of idea that this should be a really friendly, enjoyable place to be and, you know, psychologically safe for the child. There's no angry teacher telling them off like you might see in a kind of straw man traditional approach, but just this idea that this is a really positive place and you can be celebrated for who you are and where you're at now. And we're certainly willing to help push you along as much as possible, but you're welcome here for who you are, regardless of your educational needs, regardless of, you know, your abilities and all that sort of stuff. You're just, you're welcome here. And of course, traditional and progressive are going to have that too, but I think it becomes even more of a focus, at least in my experience from the mainstream classrooms I've seen in kindergarten. Yeah. And that kind of professionalism approach, um, Again, so many great traditional kindergarten and, and primary school teachers, but the shadow of the traditional approach was that some of it is based on fear and some of it is based on physical punishment and is based on a very strict uh, teacher-centric definition of what you should be doing. So what the mainstream will do is to say, okay, well, we're not going to risk it. We're not going to say that, yeah, well, some of your teachers are going to be absolutely amazing and some of them are going to be, you know, tyrants. We're going to make a level of professionalism, a level of oversight to, to make sure that everybody gets at least a decent teacher. And, you know, sure, some teachers will always be better than others, but we share best practice and we work with each other to, to push each other forward. So how about the things that are not so good about this? things that the, either the traditional or uh, progressive or even some of the mainstream might criticize. Well, we didn't give a spoiler alert, but we've already talked about this a little bit. It's contentious. Traditional teachers might see a mainstream kindergarten teacher talking to a three, four, five, six, seven-year-old like they're a grown-up. And this idea of word choice, tone, all these sorts of things, it's like, you know, 
in certain cases, I think the traditional teacher's right that this is just not developmentally appropriate for all students all of the time. Uh, so this idea of the language that we're using with kids in kindergarten, there's it, it's almost like this weird shadow of the mainstream teacher who might accuse a traditional teacher of this. It's like, no, 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 we just need to model being the adult they will become and talk to them like they're already an adult and, you know, be that way with them. And it's like, yeah, that's that might work for some of the kids some of the time or it might work for a lot of kids a lot of the time, but it might be more your ideas or values of how you think we should interact with each other rather than the actual evidence that that is the best way to speak to a kid at that age. Yeah. And then if we flip to the more progressive approach, they see this classroom that's set out with a water station, the, the dress up, the, the, the library. And they might say, actually, you're just trying to manage, effectively manage these kids' behavior and kind of force them into certain areas rather than actually listening to them and trying to develop what they are interested in. Um, and the progressive teacher would say, no, you might start off with a much simpler environment or out in the natural environment and you're working with them and you're building essentially the environment up around them. And it's, and you, and it's a negotiation or it's, a, it's an ongoing evolution of what that environment might look like. Whereas if I come into your mainstream classroom and I say, oh, you've always got the water station. Oh, you've always got dress up. You've always got this and this. Um, and you've got this this nice teacher-led uh, table where you've got four kids working through these kind of like, you know, maybe open-ended kind of like craft thing, but still very teacher-led. The Again, the criticism we say always of the progressive teacher is like, where's the actual freedom and choice for these students? You can certainly see choice. You know, I'm trying to think of some of the mainstream teachers I've worked with who I think were very high-functioning mainstream kindergarten teachers. They did build a lot of choice in. You know, it was like, hey, we've, you know, every week we introduce one or two new stations, we bring them into the mix, and then you guys, we vote on these, you know, every couple of weeks, which stations are going to stay in the mix, which ones are we going to get rid of, you know, we've only got space for whatever it was, 15 stations, but, you know, you guys have say over which ones are going to stay in the mix or which ones not, do you want to bring some back that we've temporarily retired, you know, a lot of kids say, and then, you know, there's independence within the time that they're at the station about what kinds of things they want to be doing at those stations. But to take it a few steps back further into that progressive critique you were just bringing up, Brendan, it's like, well, did the kids want any of those stations? <laughs> you know, that'd be the extreme argument. It's like, oh, cool, you're giving them lots of choice. But did they actually want any of those things? And did they have input on which stations are the new ones that are being introduced? Were we being responsive to, you know, were we using that free playtime to find out what kinds of stations might be more effective? Or, you know, is that balance of governmental oversight or district oversight about us needing to hit these benchmarks the thing that's truly informing what the kids have choice about? And what I would just throw in, and this goes for all of the babies and bathwaters, is that we're not saying this is a reasonable argument by the progressive. In certain contexts, it makes perfect sense, and maybe in others, it doesn't. And if you are more mainstream-minded, you will say, this is right. And what, what Rob's just described there is, is how we should organize these classrooms. And so very much, it is a, a mindset. It is an approach. And there isn't a right or wrong. It is very much based on context. But we've got a few more complaints. But I think both the traditional and, and the progressive might argue that you're just micromanaging this kid's behavior. It's like, give them some free time for good Lord's sake. Some actual free time. I think both traditional and progressive teachers may see even a high-functioning mainstream classroom and think, this is just too structured, too micromanaged. Every minute of the day has been pre-planned and pre-planned by a teacher, you know, who's got a lot of oversight and expectations on their shoulders to balance and to find. And it's, even though we think this is a baby, it's, you know, it's expected of them to have data to back up differentiation and to be offering all these things. It's a lot of workload 
for an effective mainstream kindergarten teacher to deliver in the classroom the kind of environment and the kinds of activities and even just sourcing resources and all these kinds of things. But also for the kids, their experience is just, there's a lot happening because that mainstream drive wants to make sure we're not missing out on any opportunities and maximizing everything we can as effectively and as efficiently as possible. So we've got only so many minutes in the day together. How can we ensure that we're getting the most out of every single minute? And I would say that really reflects on the teacher's workload, as you've hinted at there. This idea of creating learning stories or like documenting what 20 or 30 children are doing with so many curriculum objectives like the Ontario one has, you know, probably close to 100 um, curriculum objectives, some of which are quite broad, such as express their ideas, you know, in words or whatever. It's like, and the teacher is constantly trying to work, oh, have I, can I document this? Is there's this photograph come here? And I've seen so many different variations on it where, you know, people have got like a scanner where they'll scan and it's automatically tagging the kid's work and goes off. And it's like, wow, do you, is this necessary? Is this level of documentation of these children's lives necessary? What's a reasonable amount that celebrates what they've done, uh, assesses where they're going, but also gives the teachers enough time to do that and to actually play and teach and respond. It's a heavy, heavy workload. Tied into this idea of just a lot going on and a lot to juggle, as well from the kids' perspective, this is possibly overstimulating by having such a structured and micromanaged day with no real downtime aside from you know break times, whatever, which might as we alluded to in a previous recent episode, those might be jammed with a lot of extra stuff as well to make the most of those minutes. You know, this forced engagement, it's possibly overstimulating for kids. And, you know, I think you'd even hear critiques from other mainstream teachers just saying like, yeah, maybe we do have too much on the go here. And I think you'd certainly hear it from a progressive teacher and likely from a traditional teacher as well to just question like, okay, I know we've got the best interests in mind here, but how much is too much possibly? And then there's this idea of cramming all of this stuff in. Hey, mainstream teacher, you're supposed to be the one that works on research-based. Do you really need to teach phonics at three years old? Does the research back up that if you teach phonics at three, they're going to make more progress at five and six and seven? Because to me in a progressive or traditional educator, for example, doesn't look that way. I see countries all over the world that start reading at seven um, and the kids move on and by the, by the time they're 11 and 12, they're, they're equal in terms of their academic progress. You know, if you look at those PISA scores, it's not like the student, the, the countries that start teaching uh, phonics and maths at four are above and beyond, some are, and some are not. You see some of the European countries that might start at seven. You see some of the countries that start dr uh, drilling math at an earlier age. And they actually, by the time they're hitting 16, 17, uh, all of the other factors have started to, to make a, a major play. And this is one of the criticisms of these Head Start programs that invest heavily in, in preschool children trying to get them to read. There's a very noble aim. And it does look like it's working in, in the earlier years. But my understanding of the research shows that those benefits don't necessarily carry on past um, upper primary and into secondary school. Maybe there are other programs that need to back that up. But the thing is that if you're investing all of the money in, in that area and it's not having the effect, then maybe your mainstream approach isn't quite working. And again, it's a very nuanced argument. I'm giving a really simplified view though. There's much more to it, but it's like, do you really need to start this stuff at this age? Yeah, and we always come back to this idea in the mainstream that we're balancing what's most efficient and what's most effective. And I think the mainstream might say, well, this is effective, giving them this head starter, introducing phonics when they can do it at age three or four. Sure, we could wait until seven, but 
it's maybe a missed opportunity if they could already do it now. I think that's kind of the like knee jerk mainstream reaction to it. But like we're saying is like, well, you can start it at age seven. And sure, if you've got a seven-year-old who's still learning their phonics, maybe they don't look so great compared to a three or four-year-old who already knows these phonics. Sure, at face value, that seems like a big difference. But like you're saying, by the time we hit 15, 16, 17, and those two kids level out to essentially the same anyways, we could go back and say, well, we spent, you know, three or four years from age kind of three or four to seven doing stuff that these other kids picked up in a fraction of the time at a later age because it was more developmentally easy for them to pick it up quicker. What could we have been spending that three or four years on instead that may have had some other kind of positive benefit for them? Yeah. And those millions of dollars. One of the arguments in the mainstream that I've heard is that the Head Start program that money used to actually support families in lower socioeconomic areas might um, have actually longer term positive benefits that are, that are broader and more underlying rather than these very specific um, programs, you know, on academics. Um, a lot of complexity and way more than I know about this area, but we've given it our best go, Rob. How did we do? We started this with you doubting we could pull it off. I think for two two chaps that spent some time in in kindergarten, I've never taught it long term. Of course, I've done other lessons in there. And as a coordinator, I spend time in there regularly working with the kids. And I'm always in awe of the the teachers and how they work with their students. Um, Far from an expert in in the, the pedagogy of kindergarten. So that's our my two cents. And if you're a kindergarten teacher out there, we'd love to have you on talk. We had Mark on a little while ago, Mark White, who works at my school, and he gave his specific perspective on what he calls play responsive learning, which is arguably quite progressive leaning. And yeah, if you're out there and you want to critique our views or expand on them, we'd love to have a chat with you about it. Yeah, I, I agree. It'd be interesting to get someone who's had more experience. It's been quite a while for me. I had two years in Ontario uh, on the periphery, teaching a handful of classes in junior and senior kindergarten, as well as senior kindergarten slash grade one uh, in one group, which that's an interesting idea. The idea that you can have the kindergarten groups together, but you can also have a mixed class of senior kindergarten and grade one students in the the advantages that that may pose for both groups of kids. But I I know in my heart, I was never a true kindergarten teacher, the homeroom teacher who's there all the time with them. I was there for one or two periods in a row, once a day. If you're in there full time, it's a a whole other universe, that's for sure. And a lot of respect uh, for kindergarten teachers. For me growing up in Canada, the typical primary school was kindergarten to grade eight. And it was always kind of seen that those in kindergarten and those in grade eight had the two toughest jobs because you're at those kind of like developmental edges of like, you got to be in kindergarten, the one who's going to like bring them into this system. And then by grade eight, you're dealing with, you know, pretty full on adolescence, like, hey, I'm done with this. (laughs) and I'm ready for the next step. And like, yeah, how are you going to keep people on the same page? And it's almost like the same problems mirrored each other but just with eight years difference with a totally different uh, internal and social framework. Yeah. Believe me, as a, as a parent of children of those ages, um, a lot of similarities between the three-year-olds and the 15-year-olds. Um, so where are we going next? Well, speaking of relationships, communication, uh, the next step that we're going to take on this journey into exploring the nuts and bolts of the mainstream approach is the teacher, let me try that again, teacher, teacher, parent relationship. So what's the role of a parent? What's the role of a teacher and how do they interact with each other? What are their roles or the kind of agreed upon social relationship between them? Hi, I'm looking forward to it. So I'll see you in a few earth weeks for that one. Listeners out there, don't be afraid to get in touch. Reinventing Education Podcast, all one word, 
reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com. And if you were looking for the nutshell, the last five minutes glossary of our terminology, it's just about to begin. Thanks, Brennan. Thank you. Bye. And now time for the reinventing education. Three types of school in a nutshell. If you're new to us, hopefully this is a helpful guide to navigate some of the terminology we use on our podcast. All right, so every school and every educator is in a tug of war, and we're pulled in three different directions. Each of the three directions has its own definitions about what makes for a good education. But this tug of war is difficult to notice, because the three directions to education each use the same vocabulary, but each of the three directions has their own definitions for what that vocabulary means. So let's characterize these three approaches with the following names, traditional, mainstream, and progressive. And let's connect each to its relationship between a student and teacher. So traditional uses a master and apprentice model. Mainstream uses coach and athlete model. And progressive uses a counselor and counseled model. Now, these three approaches to education would agree on the surface that education has the same three aims. Those three aims of education are for occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development. However, each of the three approaches to school, traditional, mainstream, and progressive, has completely different ideas about what occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development requires. So how does each of the three approaches to education meet the three aims of school? Well, with traditional master and apprentice, we see that the teacher is an expert and knows the one best way for students to achieve academic success and meet the three aims. In the mainstream, the Olympic coach and athlete model, the teacher works to assess and create each student's individual optimal way, balancing the effectiveness and efficiency to achieve maximum academic success in relationship to the curriculum to meet those three aims. And finally, the progressive, the counselor and counseled. The teacher and student negotiate the student's path to achieve their goals for academic success to meet the three aims. Each teacher will have a preference towards one approach, while the school itself may have an overall consensus. And this is where you'll find the tug of war. These three approaches not only define how an education is conducted in the classroom, but it also informs three different directions in terms of a school's organization, its culture, and its practices. The traditional master and apprentice requires a clear pyramid of authority, prioritizing security along with duty and tradition, putting trust in those in authority to uphold their duty for the integrity of the system. The mainstream coach and athlete uses a flowchart with a mobility for all, which serves as a flexible meritocracy of authority prioritizing achievement along with measurable progress and transparency towards meeting specific goals, putting the results of those in authority as important for the integrity of this system. And finally, progressive counselor and counseled uses horizontal leadership like a circle prioritizing inclusion along with individuals' needs for meaning and empowerment putting the personal and group significance as important for the integrity of the system. We often see tugs of war between how to organize the overall structure, either reinforcing the pyramid, a flowchart, or a circle. Each of these three types of school can be done well, somewhat effectively, or poorly, and each can suit a specific context better than the rest. Here on Reinventing Education, we believe it's better for a school to choose the type of school that best suits its students, staff, and community context, and do it to be high-functioning. Otherwise, the ongoing tug-of-war between the three approaches comes at the expense of time, resources, passion, and relationships, while not even ensuring that any of the three approaches is done well. Here on Reinventing Education, we are exploring the idea of the next type of school, a post-progressive approach to education that prioritizes the integration of these three previous types of school. Why? Well, an integration approach would seek a flexible and adaptive balance of the three previous approaches as an adaptive approach to inquire into and provide what is deemed a best fit for students, community, and the system in a given context 
to best meet those three educational aims of occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development as defined by those involved. The integration value attempts to maximize the gifts when appropriate of each approach to education while discerning how to minimize unnecessary drawbacks that are required when in wholly investing in doing one approach. In order to integrate the gifts of the three previous types of school, we need to know what we have to work with. So on our podcast, we're digging deep into these three types of school and trying to tease apart the babies and the bathwaters of each one.